All righty there then. Uh, where are we? Are we ready to preach? Are you guys ready to listen? Ready to get some teaching? Okay, this is, this is not fluff and stuff. Uh, this, is, this is between the ear stuff. We're wrapping up our uh, great reversal series that's been going on for the last seven weeks where we've been looking at uh, the parables of Jesus in Luke 14 and 15 and, and just looking how the kingdom reverses all of our normal expectations. And so we're going to wrap this up. Before I get into it, though, I just want to ask more rhetorically than anything else, how did it go this week with last week's assignment? <laughs> All right. See, we're, I, I see this section of the service as just sort of a seminar in kingdom training. And so on occasion, I'll give assignments. And the assignment last week was to pray for your enemies. Pick out the person that you have the hardest time praying for, the hardest time you have loving, the hardest time you have hoping will get to heaven, and, uh, and pray for that person. And uh, that can be really challenging, which is why it is so important. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. That's good for your enemies, but it's especially good for you. And he gives God the opportunity to work on your heart, and you, he gives you a slice of his heart for uh, your enemy. And I would encourage you to be doing that until that person is no longer hard to pray for. All right? Just keep on doing that. That's a good one. That, that just grows you in, in some profound ways. Pray for your enemies. We'll be giving a few more assignments uh, in this message as, as we get on. We're entitling this one, uh, The Great Reversal Wrap-Up, or something, yeah, Great Reversal Wrap-Up. Though I wanted to give it the subtitle, Revolting Against Normal. Because as we're, as we're going to see here, uh, everything about the kingdom is uh, really revolting against what we would otherwise think is normal. We are called to be abnormal. Some of us have no problems whatsoever doing that. <laughs> but uh, abnormal in all the right ways. Uh, pray with me here for a moment. Lord, we want to make your praise glorious, not just by how we sing, but by how we live. And that's what this is about. And to do that, God, we have to really swim upstream in a culture that's always conditioning us to do otherwise, to have a default setting of normal that is not at all glorious. So, Lord, will you hear right now, for all the people in this auditorium, all the podrishners, everyone watching television, open up our minds, open up our ears, open up our hearts to receive your word, uh, to lower our defense systems that we have sometimes set up against uh, your word to inoculate ourselves from it so we can keep doing the normal life we've always been living. God, help us to just be willing to be moved outside the box and become the revolutionaries that you've called us to be, you've empowered us to be, you expect us to be, and you know we can be. Let it be done in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. We're not going to be uh, teaching out of the book of Luke uh, as we have done the last seven weeks because I'm wrapping this whole thing up. Um, and I, 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 to bring it together, I want to, if you will allow me to, uh, indulge in one of my academic moments. Now, even if you don't allow me to, I'm going to do it anyway, so you might as well say, go ahead. <laughs> Once in a while, you know, if you don't know me very well, if you've been here for a while, you probably know this, but one of my great loves is I, when I'm not in, in public, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bookworm. I'm just one of these kind of boring eggheads, and I spend a lot of time... Uh, reading a lot of Greek philosophy and, and uh, I'm now examining how it impacts the early church. Been in this project for seven years. And I, I just really am getting into this. I hope to put it all together in a book in a couple of years. I actually am, am seven years behind on the due date of this thing for this publisher. Uh, but it's just an overwhelming project, but I love it. Okay, so this is the other part of me, this egghead part of me. 
And I've been studying, and once in a while I'll indulge in an academic moment, and people learn that they have to put up with that. It will be even more difficult here for the next five minutes because you're not even going to know why I'm telling you what I'm telling you, but I guarantee you, or I can almost guarantee you that you'll see why here if you'll just hang with me. And this is a teaching message, so you're going to have to keep your thinking caps on, all right? Uh, This is content, and more than it is exhortation and emotion, this is content stuff. So here we go. The early church wrestled with a lot of theological and philosophical problems, and they were influenced in various ways by the pagan philosophy of the time when they did that. One of the major problems they wrestled with was how Jesus could be fully God and fully human. The Bible depicts Jesus as fully God, the Bible depicts Jesus as fully human, and they wrestled with how do you put that together? Now, you might think that that wouldn't be that difficult. John 1.14 just tells us that the Word was made flesh and made His dwelling with us. The Word was identified as God in verse 1, so this is God was made flesh. What's difficult about that? God is all-powerful. He can do whatever He wants. He decided to be God in a new way, namely as this man, Jesus Christ. What's the problem? Well, the early church had a big problem with this. Um, not in believing it, but in trying to make sense out of it. And part of the problem was that there was, and here's the academic moment, a long, highly esteemed philosophical tradition that goes back actually before Plato, goes back to the 6th century B.C. So far as I've been able to discern, it goes back to a philosopher named Xenophanes. And he started a tradition Became very, this tradition became the dominant way of thinking about things in the ancient world. And in this tradition, since they don't have divine revelation, what they did was they sort of just thought their way into a definition of God. And the way they arrived at this definition of God was by contrasting God with everything in this world. It was the via negativa, the, the definition by, by, by negation. They would look at every aspect of this world and negate it and say that's what God is. So this world, you may have noticed, is always in time. And so they postulated a God who's, who's above time, completely timeless. And this world is always changing, and so they postulated a God who in every respect, not just in his character, but in every respect doesn't change. And they came to view passion and suffering as a sign of weakness, and so they, they, they define God as being above emotion, above passion, And above all suffering, God is impassable. And God is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. And that was the normal view of God. That became, among intellectuals at least, the standard normal, quote-unquote, view of God. Now, what you need to know is that the early church, uh, when the whole thing was getting launched, some intellectuals were converted into the Christian movement. And some of them at least brought their normal view of God with them. Others were influenced by it. Uh, by other means, but to a large degree at least, these folks accepted the normal view of God as altogether timeless, as altogether unchanging, as altogether passionless, above emotion and suffering. And if you accept that view of God, you have a hard time making sense out of Jesus being fully God and fully human. Because to say Jesus is fully God and fully human with that definition of God means Jesus is both fully timeless and yet as a human, he's fully temporal. And Jesus as God is beyond change, completely immutable, changeless. And yet Jesus is very 
changing because he became flesh and he was a human being and, 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 and changed a lot. And, and, and uh, Jesus is both above passion and suffering and yet fully involved in passion and suffering. And how do you put those two things together? It was like they were trying to pack a timeless, changeless, passionless definition of God into the person of Jesus Christ and it just didn't fit very well. It was like trying to explain how some substance could be both fully and completely gold and fully and completely silver. Not partly gold and partly silver, not a mixture of the two, but fully gold and yet at the same time fully silver. When you know very well that, very well that to be silver is, to, is to not to be gold, and to be gold is not to be silver. It's really quite a conundrum. And they wrestled with this and talked about it and debated it, and they finally came up with what was considered the orthodox solution at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And the solution is to say that God, Jesus is fully God and fully human, and these two natures or substances relate to, together in such a way that, and here's the quote, they are without change, they don't change, they're without fusion, they don't get fused together, they're without separation and without division. And that was the solution. Now, if, you're, if you think about it, long and hard, you'll see that that definition doesn't say much of anything. It says what Jesus is not, but it doesn't say what Jesus is. And so it hardly helps us render intelligible and coherent, understandable, how Jesus is fully God and fully human. But given how they set up the problem, I don't think you could do any better than that. I appreciate and and, and believe in the Council of Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian Creed, insofar as its intent was to say Jesus is fully God and fully human, But I don't think you can give much coherent meaning to their way of doing it. Now, here's the problem. They started with what they thought they knew about God, with their normal definition of God. And then they tried to add Jesus to it and fit Jesus into it as a sort of an addendum. They assume they know who God is and what God is like ahead of time and then discover that it's very hard to reconcile that view of God with the person of Jesus Christ. And I say all that to say this. I think we, in various ways, do this a lot. Some of us all the time without knowing it. We assume a normal view of God that we inherited from the culture. It feels normal to us. It's commonsensical to us. And then we try to fit Jesus into it. Trouble is that our normal view of God is inherited from a fallen culture, which is why many Christians have profoundly sub-Christian views of God. They maybe have the right creed, they can have the right theology, maybe they can even recite the Chalcedonian Creed, but when it comes to how they actually picture God in their head, it's very sub-Christian because they're trying to fit Jesus into what they already think they know about God rather than the other way around. The same thing can be said about the kingdom or about Christian living. We we tend to assume we know what the kingdom is and we know what Christian living is and then we try to fit the teachings of Jesus into our normal definition. And that's why many Christians don't differ very much at all from the culture because they basically assume the normality of the culture and then add Jesus as a sort of addendum. So all the studies done on this suggest that the majority of American Christians differ very, very little from the non-Christians. That's because they're absorbing the normal and then fitting Jesus in as an addition. It's also why um, 
You find throughout history, Christians sometimes doing atrocious and despicable things and doing it in Jesus' name. So it's sort of like this. It seems so normal, so commonsensical to use violence when it's in your interest or in the interest of God. So it seems very normal to assume that God wants us to use violence. And so we end up using violence whenever it's in our interest to use violence, just like all the other normal people do. But we do it in Jesus' name. Despite the fact that Jesus told us not to engage in violence. It seems so natural, so normal to want to and to quest after comfort and wealth and security and power. And so it seems normal to assume that God's, one of God's main interests is to provide us with comfort, wealth, security, and power. And so what we find throughout history and by and large yet today is a people who seek after comfort, wealth, security, and power just like all the other normal people do, but we do it in Jesus' name. Despite the fact that Jesus warned us against seeking after comfort, wealth, security, and power. All of this is because we tend to start our thinking about God and the kingdom with our normal ideas about God and the kingdom, God and Christian living, and then we try to fit Jesus and his teachings into it rather than the other way around. So just as with the Council of Chalcedon, we end up trying to mix together gold and silver, and it just doesn't work. I want to submit to you that we've got it all profoundly upside down. Rather than starting with our normal view of God and our normal view of Christian living and then trying to fit Jesus into it, we ought to start all of our thinking from beginning to end with Jesus Christ and then readjust our normal accordingly. We need to start with Jesus' teaching and then revolt against everything that we might have considered normal but doesn't agree with what we find to be true in the person of Jesus Christ. All of our thinking about God and all of our thinking, we need to actually pretend like we don't know anything about God and we don't know anything about what it means to be a Christian and then start fresh and look at Jesus and let him tell us who God is and let him tell us what it is to walk in his ways, to be Christ-like. And everything that we would think would be normal that doesn't conform with that, we need to revolt against it and do it in Jesus' name. And when we do this, when we start with Jesus Christ and we stay intent on him, focused on him, we will discover that there's very little that's normal about God. And we'll discover that there's very little that's normal about the follower of Jesus. In fact, when Jesus is the center of our definition of God and the center of what it means to to be a follower of Jesus, everything or almost everything we would think would be normal is reversed. And that's been the theme of this whole last seven weeks. So we learn as we look at Jesus that God is omnipotent, but... And that's normal. You would think think that. But this omnipotent God reveals his omnipotence through the weakness of the cross. How normal is that? And God is victorious, yes, indeed, but he reveals, he accomplishes his victory by being defeated or looking like he's defeated on Calvary. How normal is that? God is infinitely wise, but he reveals his wisdom through the foolishness of the cross. How normal is that? God's supremacy... Overall, things is revealed in the humility of his sacrificial death. How normal is that? God's holiness is revealed. His supreme holiness is revealed, not in the way the Pharisees did it. That wasn't true holiness. God's holiness is revealed in the way that he hangs out with, accepts, and even parties with the worst of sinners. How normal is that? 
God's richness is revealed in his solidarity with the poor. How, how normal is that? And God's sovereignty is revealed in the fact that he becomes a servant to humanity. How normal is that when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, everything we would think would be normal about God tends to be reversed. And notice this, just to return to my academic moment for a a second. If we start all of our thinking about God with the fact that God became a man, with Jesus Christ, we no longer have any problem of trying to mix gold and silver. We no longer have the problem of trying to pack a a, a timeless, changeless, passionless substance into a temporal changing, suffering substance. That problem's not there any longer. If we start with Jesus Christ and stay focused on Jesus Christ, you simply accept at the start that this is what God looks like. When God becomes a human, he's not becoming something alien to himself, something unnatural. To the contrary, when God becomes a human in the person of Jesus Christ, here he's finally expressing what he's really like, what his character really is like. You see glimpses of, of, of the essence and the true character of God in the Old Testament, but there's also a whole lot of accommodation to human fallenness there. But in the person of Jesus Christ, here we finally see. Here's the one who says I, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and if you see me, you see the Father. This is what God really is like. He really is this beautiful. When our eyes are focused on Jesus Christ, we see who God is, and he's not some timeless, changeless, passionless, all-controlling, metaphysical principle. He's a personal God whose very essence is love. A love that is defined by the fact that he's willing to become a human being. A love that's defined by the fact that he takes upon himself our humanity and takes upon himself our our sin and takes upon himself our judgment and takes upon himself our hell in order to reconcile us to himself. That's what God really is like. He's that kind of love. That's the ultimate thing to be said about him. He really is that beautiful. But you only get there... If you start with Jesus and end with Jesus, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And our call as Jesus followers, folks, is profoundly simple and profoundly challenging. It's to love like that. It's to live like that. It's to serve like that. It's to sacrifice like that. And when we do, we'll discover that everything that maybe felt normal in our lives starts to get turned upside down and starts to get reversed. We're called to imitate Jesus. Jesus didn't grasp after power, but rather set it aside in order to serve. That's what we're called to do. And when we do that, we manifest what true power is. It's the power of God's servant love. And Jesus didn't grasp after riches, but rather entered into solidarity with the poor. That's what we're called to do. And when we do that, we manifest what true richness is. It's the richness of the kingdom. It's the richness of God's love. Uh, We're called to, or Jesus chose to suffer rather than to defeat his enemies with violence. And that's what we're called to do. And when we do that, we manifest what real victory is. What it is for good to overcome evil. What kingdom victory is. Jesus showed what true holiness was like by setting aside judgment and befriending sinners, and that's what we're called to do. And when we do that, we manifest a righteousness and a holiness that's not at all like the Pharisees' righteousness and holiness. No, it's it's kingdom righteousness and kingdom holiness because it's the holiness of God's perfect love. Jesus didn't conform to his culture insofar as the culture didn't conform to God's will. Instead, he manifested what it looked like for God to reign in a human life and therefore revolted 
against every aspect of the culture that wasn't in line with God's will. And so by the way he lived, not by the opinions he held, but by the way he actually lived, he revolted against the racism of his culture and against the sexism of his culture and against the classism of his culture and against the oppression of his culture. And that's what we're called to do. That's how we're called to live. Revolting by how we live, not by our mere opinions, but to live against racism and to live against sexism and classism and to live against all forms of oppression. To manifest the one new humanity of Jesus Christ where all those silly walls and demonic walls have been torn down. Following the example of Jesus Christ, we're to revolt against all the idols of our culture. We're to revolt by how we live against the idolatry of sex in this culture, which is rampant. And the idolatry of nationalism and the idolatry of violence and the idolatry of wealth. And the idolatry of individualism and the idolatry that is a lust for, for power in our culture. And when we stop trying to fit Jesus into our quote-unquote normal lives and rather allow our normal lives to be transformed by Jesus, we find that almost everything that's normal in our lives lives gets reversed. And this is what we're called to do, folks. We are called to be weird. Somebody say amen. We're called to be weirdos. Weirdos. Sign us up. We're called to be weirdos. Hey, this isn't me. The Bible tells us we're called to be aliens. We're called to be foreigners. We're called to be strangers on this earth. Uh, we're, 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 we march to a different drummer, we follow a different king, we're part of a different kingdom, we're citizens of heaven, not of this earth. We're called to be weird, and, and, and noticeably so. Uh, noticeably so. And in fact, that is to be the center of our lives, the passion of our existence, the reason why we exist, to seek first the kingdom of God, to make that the highest priority of our life, to, to make living out God's values and God's priorities and therefore revolting against the priorities and values of this culture, that's to be the passion of our existence, the purpose why we live, the most important thing in our life. And so the question we've got to live in, because this is one of those kind of questions you can't settle once and for all and then be done with it, but the question we've got to live in is, are we in fact fitting Jesus and quote-unquote Christian living, the kingdom, into our normal, or are we letting God transform our normal into Jesus and the kingdom? It's a question we've got to live in. Now, what I want to do here is, is uh, in the next 20 minutes, uh, 23 minutes actually, um, is offer, see, that, that, that on the one hand, it's a, that can be difficult to understand, but understanding it, understanding it isn't the most difficult part. Revolt against the culture. The hard part, the really hard part, we can't do it on our own power, folks, is living it. Living it. That's why we like to spend so much time just theologizing about it. It it helps us steer clear of actually doing it. No, but we're called to live it. And here's where it gets rough. I'm going to offer three disciplines, three spiritual disciplines, which I think help us train for that. Help us train for that. All the spiritual disciplines in church history, I think, are advantageous, some more than others, to different people because we're all individuals, but all of them are beneficial to living out the kingdom. Uh, and if you're not aware of the spiritual disciplines, I, I would, I would uh, encourage you to read a book like Richard Foster's Celebrating Discipline, Richard Foster, or, or Dallas Willard's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. And there's a lot of other books out there that talk about the traditional spiritual disciplines in church history. I'm going to talk about the three that I think are particularly important on this topic. Training to revolt against the culture and to uh, revolt against normal. The first one is one that I've talked quite a bit about. 
it is the discipline of staying awake, what is sometimes called the practice of the presence of God. I've come to believe over the last couple of years that this is the most foundational of the spiritual disciplines. Uh, it is, I think, the most difficult of the spiritual disciplines. But it's also the easiest of the disciplines to start because you can start it right now. It's the discipline of just simply staying awake to God's presence. God is present right here, right now. Just know that fact. It was made famous by Brother Lawrence, um, but there's been others who have practiced it before and after him. The addition that I recommend is one that is by, uh, of his work that I recommend is Brother Lawrence and Frank Laubach, L-A-U-B-A-C-K, in a book called The Practice of the Presence. And they have both of their writings in this book. It, it, it's just a very helpful book on, on embarking on this, this discipline. What it is, as I mentioned, is just staying awake to God's presence. Right here, right now, you are in the middle of an ocean, an infinite ocean of God's perfect love. His presence is here. Simply know that. You don't have to feel it or anything of the sort. Just be aware that you are surrounded by the presence of God. That's the discipline. It's that simple. Uh, There's tremendous blessings to this, as people throughout history have said, as some folks at Woodland Hills Church who have been practicing this have said it's very difficult, but, but when you can grow in this area, um, uh, there's, a, there, there's tremendous blessings in store. The one that I think is most important for our purposes here this morning is this. When we stay awake to God's presence, are you still awake? See how easy it is to forget? I, I, it's pre- I have on my notes here, it says stay present. On every page, at least once, it says stay present, and I still forget. As I'm talking to you, I just forget, and I'm all into my content. So I'm, aware, I'm surrounded by God's presence. Okay, now, as we do this, as you are aware of God's presence, what it does is it revolts against your normal consciousness. The normal of our, of our consciousness, our awareness. The normal of our awareness is programmed by the fallen culture, which is why the normal of our ordinary consciousness is atheistic. We exclude God from our awareness as easy as we breathe. We're, almost, we're usually simply aware of our physical environment. To commit to staying awake, to staying aware to God's presence is revolting against that normal. You're trying to change the default setting of your normal way of, of, of uh, being aware of the world. Because we default to an atheistic flesh mindset that's inherited from the culture, we naturally just kind of think like the culture and feel like the culture, experience the world like the culture, and therefore, of course, live like the culture. The Bible says that as a person thinks in their heart, so are they. So if we're going to make significant changes in how we live, it's got to start between our ears. And so I encourage you to stay awake to God's presence. A person is awake to the, to the degree that they're aware of their uh, environment. Well, and when you fall asleep, you aren't aware of your environment. What happens to us is we instinctively fall asleep because we forget the most important aspect of our environment at any moment, and that is that God is here. Did you know that? God is here. His presence is right here. Just be aware of that. Pay attention to what I'm saying. You can still do that while you're aware that God is here. As you go throughout the day, you can do all the normal things you you do. Just try to remember that God is here. We We do our life surrounded by an ocean of God's love. 
When we do the atheistic flesh mindset, what we're doing is we have our normal and then we, we fit God into it once in a while. We visit God on occasion when we pray and when we go to church and things like that, but we live in our normal rather than letting God engulf our normal. To practice the presence of God is simply to say, God, engulf my normal. You're inviting him into every moment of your life. You're including him in on your awareness. That's changing your default of what is normal. So I encourage you. Here's the first assignment. Uh, for today's seminar teaching. Stay awake to God's presence. Try to stay awake the rest of this message. Now, I guarantee you, you'll forget in a minute, but that's okay. When you remember, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be aware of God's presence, just start doing it. The past isn't important. The present's what's important. It's the only thing that's real, so stay awake to God's presence. Try to integrate God into everything you do just by being aware of Him. As you're talking to somebody, as you're driving down the street, as you're listening to a message, whatever you're doing, just do it against the backdrop of God's presence. You're surrounded by God's infinite love. I encourage you, I give you this assignment, to cultivate the practice of talking to God throughout the day. Invite God into your thought process. That's what it is, to stay aware while you're thinking and stay stay aware while you're going throughout your day. Uh, Talk to him, just offer him blessings, praise, ask him for advice. Talk to God, commune throughout the day. Do whatever you need to do to to remember to do that, whether it's post-it notes or having a friend text you once in a while or whatever. Stay awake to God's presence. Talk to him. I encourage you to develop, cultivate the habit of blessing people. That's a way of staying present to God. Uh, you're in the grocery store. Bless the people that are there. You're waiting in line to go to the movie. Bless the people that are there. You're driving on the road. Bless the people that are there, especially when they cut you off. Bless them. It just, it just be a blessing machine. And watch how that expands your hearts. It is such, it, it, it grows you. It just grows you. See, the flesh atheistic mindset that is our normal, it's all self-centered. We're only occupied with ourselves. But when you begin to be aware of God's presence, your, your, your awareness expands to, to folks around you and, and you start blessing them and it grows your heart. You grow in compassion. You grow in your capacity to love. I encourage you as you're doing this to, when there's a prompting in your heart, to act on it. As long as it's a kingdom prompting and, and, and it's consistent with the character of God. Uh, see, when you're aware of God's presence, now you're in a position where he can talk to you. He always wants to talk with us. We just don't listen very much because we're doing our flesh atheistic mindset. But when you're aware of God's presence, uh, now he can, he, he can cause you to notice the person over there who's struggling trying to get their baby in a baby carriage and you can go and help them. Uh, the person over there who's, who can't pay for their grocery bill and they're very embarrassed so you go up there and buy their groceries. As you're aware of God's presence, you'll see opportunities to, to love and serve all around you. All of a sudden there's this impulse. You're supposed to go give this person all the money that's in your wallet. That happens sometimes. But man, is it beautiful. It's crazy, yes, but we're, remember the point here is to be abnormal. This is an exercise in weirdness. Yes. And watch how God uses this to just expand your world. Expand your world and, and, and you, you get more of a Christ heart. And you're learning how to live in love uh, as he loved you and gave his life for you. Not just visit love once in a while or find the on and off button, but you live in it as a permanent mode. So the first discipline is the discipline of staying awake. Stay present. God is here right now. We are sitting in an ocean of his presence. The most important fact of our environment. More important than what I'm saying, more important than what the person next to you is doing is the fact that God is present here. God is present here. The second discipline is the discipline of fasting. Now, this is, this is one, in contrast to the practice of the presence, this is one I haven't talked much at all about in the last four or five years. The reason is because it's one that I haven't been practicing much the last four or five years. <laughs> right, there you go. I, I used to, and then you kind of slip out of it, you backslide. You don't even notice it. 
And I've been getting back to it. And I'm sure some of you can relate to this. When you get back to a discipline, you wonder, why did you ever leave it? Like, oh, this is really important and good. And, and how did I ever forget it? You know, and that's just how carnal we are, I guess. But uh, uh, I see this as just a foundational uh, uh, practice. And one that we'll see here is very helpful in revolt- revolting against the normal of the world. Now, what fasting is, traditionally, uh, in Scripture and throughout church history, it's abstaining from food, uh, either for a meal or for a whole day or for several days, for a week. Some go up to 40 days. I've never done that, but uh, there are those who do, and if God calls you to it, then if your doctor checks it out, uh, fine. But that's what, it, that, that's what it is. Now, there are folks who've got health issues, and some folks have got food issues, bulimia or anorexia or something like that. And this wouldn't be the discipline for you. Okay, so lock that in. Uh, first get okay with that stuff before you embark on this discipline. But that's okay if you can't abstain from food because fasting incorporates abstaining from anything that is part of your normal. Abstaining from anything that is normal to your enjoyment and benefit and pleasure in the world. And so some people fast from television. For a period of time. Uh, some folks fast from radio. You don't always have to have the radio on. Take a week and turn it off when you're in the car and, uh, and use it to talk to God. See what happens. Some folks fast from alcohol for a time or, or permanently. Some folks uh, fast from tobacco. Some married folks fast for a season from sex. Oh, but that one's not permanent, but you know, that, that's, uh, th- th- that's something that people have done. Some p- folks fast from certain kinds of food like meat or chocolate. Some folks fast from certain activities like compulsive shopping. Somebody say amen. <laughs> uh, there's one family at Wilton Hills last year who, uh, uh, as they were going into the Christmas season, they decided to fast from consumeristic Christmas. This is an idea. And they still got their kids some toys, but they explained to them that this year they're not going to go overboard like they usually do, but they're going to take the money that... And they invited the kids in on this decision-making process, which was, was good. They're going to take the money that they usually use for, the, for their kids, which is extravagant, and now they're going to go to a homeless shelter and bless the children that are there providing food and clothing and toys for those kids. And they include the kids at every step. Now, that is the best Christmas, you could, Christmas gift you could ever give a child to show them what the true meaning of Christmas is. Is. Maybe you're not called to that, but that, that, is, that is a fast. Uh, to take something as God leads you and abstain from it. What's part of your normal. And there's many blessings involved in fasting, whether it's fasting from food or fasting from something else, as church history uh, testifies. In the early church, they saw fasting as, as, a, as a primary way of getting authority over demons. They saw fasting as the primary way of growing spiritually and getting more mastery over your emotions and over some of your cravings. But what interests me most here this morning is that fasting, whether it's from food or from something else, is by definition a revolt against normal. You're interrupting your normal, and that is a good thing. It's normal to when you're hungry to eat. Especially in a, in a culture like ours where most people are part of the 25% of the people on the planet that can have food on demand. So when we're hungry, boom, we, 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 we eat. And it's normal that uh, uh, when you want to watch a television show and you got a TV, you watch it. That's normal. But there is such a value in choosing to abstain from something that's normal and enjoyable for a higher purpose, namely the kingdom. It's a way of saying no to your normal. It's giving a pattern interrupt to to your normal. It trains you in self-denial. And self-denial is the very essence of what it means to follow Jesus. 
And it's so important in our culture because our, the normal of our culture is intensely self-gratification. And so we tend not to be very good at self-denial when that is really the essence of what it is to follow Jesus. Paul says that we're to be like an athlete who's training for a race. You buffet your body. Many people do a lot of things that an athlete doesn't do because the athlete isn't training. Well, we're in training for the kingdom. And if people training for the Olympics take that seriously and go to extraordinary measures to train for that, how much more should kingdom people be training ourselves to say no to normal so that we can run effectively in the, the, the kingdom? And you find that the more you, de- the more you deny the normal, the better you get at it. It's like lifting weights. You get stronger. A little leaven leavens the whole lump for better or for worse. And when you take an area of your life and say no to it, you'll find that you tend to be better at saying no to other things. As the early church always saw, that, that, that when, when you abstain from something that's natural for you to have, it, you're, you're, you're flexing your spiritual muscle. You're putting your spirit over your mind and body, which is the right priority, and you're saying, quit whining, I'm in charge here. And that's how we grow in the spirit. Conversely, as the early church saw so beautifully, when we never say no to what is natural, we, we remain spiritual babies. We pamper ourselves incessantly. Whatever we want, we get. And, and uh, as the early church saw, if we can't say no to some things in our life that are natural, like eating food when we're hungry, we'll find it impossible to say no to the power, principalities and powers that govern a culture and to swim upstream in significant ways of the culture. So I encourage you to seek God's will about what he would have you fast from. Jesus says, when you fast, do it this way. He doesn't say, if you fast. Self-denial, abstaining from normal things, is to be a regular pattern in the Christian life, whether it's food or otherwise. And I watch as you do this. Watch how it, over time, helps you being weird for the kingdom. Uh, how, how it grows you in being a countercultural person. Sometimes God may call you to fast uh, for a long period of time, for a season, from something, food or something else. Sometimes he even calls you to fast from something permanently. This I want out of your life. And it's not because it's wrong. This is because God wants it out of your life. He knows you better than you know you. And he sees that you'd be better as a kingdom person if this wasn't in your life. And you don't have to know why. But I encourage you to obey God on that. Because you'll find as you walk in obedience to things that he says shouldn't be there, even if everyone else gets to have it, uh, you'll find that it grows you and changes you. About five and a half years, the Lord told me in very clear terms that I was supposed to give up meat. And it seems like it's supposed to be for the rest of my life. And I didn't like that at all. I am a carnivore, the core of my being. I like steak and hamburgers. At least I did back then. Now, now I'm not tempted so much. But man, this was hard. And it was, you know, there's a period you go through where you whine. No, it's no fair. Everyone else gets to eat meat, and it's not a, nothing against it in the Bible. Why do I have to give it up? But, you know, if God calls you to give it up, give it up. And, and what you'll find sooner or later is that there's a, something changes in you when you do that. For me, and this is just me, I'm not saying this, this isn't a rule, this isn't a law. Whenever God calls you to give up something, do not make a law out of it and become a Pharisee and judge others. That's about you, not them. And so in this case, God called me to do this, but it, what it did is it adjusted something in me. It just, it changes the way I look at life, the way I look at animals. I have a respect and a reverence for things that I didn't have before. I see beauty where I didn't see it before. I have a, sensitive, a sensitivity to violence uh, that, I, that, I, that I never had before. And, and, and so when, when God wants to adjust something in your life, obey him. Whether it's a temporary thing or a life thing, uh, 
you will find that you are blessed immeasurably. So my assignment on this one is simply this. Seek God's will about what you are to be regularly fasting from. And it may change over time. But what you're to abstain from for the sake of the kingdom. That's the discipline of fasting. It trains you in self-denial, which is the very essence of following Jesus. And to wake up to and revolt against the normal of the culture. The final discipline is the discipline of community. Now it may strike you as weird that I refer to community as a discipline. Because we, refer, we usually think of community as just sort of a natural, casual, fun get-together. Get together with friends once in a while and maybe read the Bible, maybe go out to a movie, just have fun. And that's great. Nothing wrong with that. But see, in some respects, this is the problem. That we don't think about community as a discipline. What happens is our communities, many of them are, are, are good and wonderful, but they're way too normal. They're defined by what is convenient for us, what is comfortable for us, what we happen to like. They're, they're defined by our preferences, which is why many of our communities, our fellowships, don't ever challenge us significantly. Which is why also when we stop liking them, we leave. There's no discipline there. I don't like it. I, I don't care for this. This is inconvenient. And since that was how we got into it, that's how we get out of it. Throughout church history, they've defined community as discipline. Now, the word community is the combination of the prefix come and the word unity. Come means together, alongside of. Unity means, of course, unity. So community is, is, is unity alongside another. It's united for a purpose. You're united for a reason. There's a unity of intentionality that encompasses both of you. And it's good to have community where the purpose is simply to have fun and the purpose is to have friends and not be lonely. That's wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. But a kingdom community is not primarily about that. A kingdom community is one where you're together for the kingdom, to grow in the kingdom, to learn the kingdom, and to advance the kingdom. And when we do this, as the church has always testified, there are innumerable benefits in growing as kingdom people. In fact, I would argue and have always argued that it is the most beautiful and perfect expression of the kingdom. It is the essence of the kingdom. In kingdom community, that's where we do the 59 one another's that the New Testament commands. Love one another, serve one another, be humble to one another, carry one another's burdens, and things like that. You can't do that alone. And you can't do that in a large group like this. You can only do that when your lives are intertwined. And the New Testament commands it 59 times. In kingdom community, that's where we learn how to revolt against the idolatry of individualism in our culture because I guarantee you, you'll have to sacrifice some of your individual rights to be a part of this. Here's where we learn how to serve, learn how to sacrifice, learn how to be patient. Because whenever you're involved with people, you've got to learn patience. And see, this is part of the beauty of, of, of kingdom community. It requires discipline. I believe, folks, it is impossible for us to significantly revolt against the normal of the culture if you're a lone ranger. You can do some things, but I don't think it's going to be lasting and it's not going to be significant. Alone, we tend to slip back to the default of our culture and follow the herd. One of the reasons I'm convinced the American church pretty much blends in with the herd is because we tend to be lone rangers. We don't have significant community. If we're going to manifest the unique beauty of the kingdom revolting against the normal of the culture, we need to have others in our life. We need to have others who we trust enough. And this takes time. So this isn't a magical, boom, do it. You can't do it with a program. But we've learned to trust enough where they get to challenge us. They hold us accountable. 
We need to have people in our life who encourage us when we're starting to slip away. Uh, People who hold us up and minister to us when we're wounded and hurting or maybe just too tired to go on. We need people in our life with whom we can ask the question, are we being radical enough? Uh, Are we conforming to the culture too much? Have we bought too much into the ideals of the American empire and too little into the ideals of the uh, kingdom? We need people in our life with whom we can go on a journey together and say, how can we together uh, uh, grow in this and buck the system and become kingdom revolutionaries and throw off more of the American ideals and manifest more of the beauty of the kingdom of God? We need people who are involved in our life who can, uh, with us, ask the question, how can we be less normal? Do we look too normal right now? What can we do to better serve our community, to better sacrifice, to hoard less resources to manifest the beauty and the love of Jesus Christ. We all need people like that in, in, in our life. Uh, my own uh, small group that I do life with, about five and a half years ago, after talking about it and wrestling with stuff and praying about it for a number of years, we all moved into the city together and, and lived uh, and live now on the, on the same block. And not everyone's called to do that, but we were called to do that, and it's been a beautiful thing. And now we live in the question, okay, God, how, how would you have us woven together even, even more tightly? And how would you have us serving our community even more effectively? Um, what does it look like for us to really have all things in common? Uh, our lives are still too individualistic. How, how can we have more things in common? Are we willing to invite each other into uh, what we buy and how, how we use our resources and how we spend our time? Are, are we willing to give each other that level of, con- of, of, of uh, trust and, and, and commitment? What would it look like for us to better carry one another's burdens? And we don't have all the solutions to this at all. It's an adventure. It's like, let's explore this. But see, when there's other people in your life, when one's tending to be less radical, another will be more radical. And you're pushing one another. What about this? What about that? At one point we said, what what would happen if we just joined each other's hands and jumped off the cliff? What the heck? And and just got crazy with this stuff. See, it'd be too scary to do that alone. But when you got other people, it's okay, you know, we're suffering together. We're doing this crazy thing together. And there's a solidarity in that. A community can be you know, just a few people or it can be up to 10 or 12, but it can't get too big uh, because it's just hard to develop the level of trust that you need to do this. But we all need this in our life. Uh, and so I wanna, my last assignment is this. I want to encourage you. The teacher is giving the assignment. Look at relationships you now have and ask the question, how can I bring more of the kingdom to them? You can't do this overnight. Don't be belligerent. You know, don't like think you're good. No, it take, it, you have to walk through life a, wh- a while uh, to really, you know, get this. But ask the question in this relationship uh, or these relationships in your small group uh, uh, with these friends, how can we bring a little more of the kingdom? Can you start asking the question, are we radical enough? Uh, how can we hold each other more accountable? How can we serve one another more? Bring the kingdom to those relationships. If you don't have relationships that are even potentially kingdom, I mean, to have a kingdom relationship, the other person has to, at least in principle, want to grow in the kingdom. If you don't have those relationships, I want to implore you and encourage you and advise you to get some. Get some people in your life who you can at least grow in this direction with. Uh, and we don't have a set program for how to do that. We have small groups, and, and, and that's one way of, of accessing this. But I encourage you to pray about and seek these kind of relationships. 
Uh, out in the gathering area, have your antennas open and just meet a bunch of people. And maybe a person you meet there, you know, someone that you'll grow to become a kind of kingdom partner with. And that can grow to include uh, some other people. Uh, when we do our meet and eats uh, once a month after service, I encourage you to go on those and get to meet some other people. Volunteer in ministries. Great way to meet people. Inside the church, outside the church, we got like 120 ministries that we, that we uh, uh, support here. Get involved in some of those and rub shoulders with other people and get to know them. And maybe a kingdom relationship or relationships will grow out of that. Uh, we have training for small group leaders every once in a while. Be looking for that to happen. And I encourage you, if you're not in a small group, to uh, uh, take on that. Uh, there's a lot of other ways as well. We're having a Letters from a Skeptic class in January, and part of the class will be, it's mainly for new believers, but we'll be dividing, up, dividing folks up in terms of regions, so you get to know some people from your regions and develop community that way. I can guarantee you, if your heart is to grow in the kingdom in partnership with some others, and if you're praying about it, and if you're looking for it, it may take a while, but you will find it. And that will be a very, very important part of your life. So assignment number one, stay awake to the presence of God. Did you remember? I didn't. I forgot again. Okay, but that's okay. That's okay. One one of the values of having community is is folks can text each other. One of the guys in my small group, he and I are the only ones that are up at five in the morning, so we text each other, are you present? Are you staying present? And almost always we have to say, no, I wasn't, but thanks for reminding me. But, you know, you, you, you help each other stay awake. Stay present. Stay present. Stay awake to the presence of God. Obey the promptings that, 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 that arise. Bless people compulsively and things of that sort. Secondly, I encourage you to pray about what God would have you fast from. And third, bring the kingdom to the relationships you already have and or seek out new kingdom relationships. It's vital. Could I ask the prayer team to come forward? And I'm going to close in prayer, but I'll say this. If you're here and you have any need that you would like to have prayed for, whether it's physical or financial or spiritual or relational or anything, come forward and pray with these folks. Um, that's what they're, they're here for. I send us out with this blessing. Father, give us the boldness and the courage to live differently. We're all in process on this. We've got a long way to go. God, help us from feeling defeated uh, because of where we're at, but rather encouraged about where you want us to be. And God, I just pray that you'd remind us to stay awake and remind us to say no to the normal of our life on a regular basis. And God, move us into accountability relationships, kingdom relationships, mutually supporting, mutually enhancing, growing growing relationships in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. Grow and grow the kingdom.